Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing Strange But True, The Life and Adventures of Captain Thomas Crapo and Wife, published in New Bedford in 1893. We're on section six, and we're continuing chapter three. Chapter three, to different parts of the country, continued. While discharging the cargo, all of the crew, including the steward, deserted. After discharging our cargo, we took on part of a load of cement for New York. We were there nearly a month, and when ready to sail, the captain shipped four sailors and a steward. We then towed partway down the Thames River. We then made sail and beat down to the town off Deal and came to an anchor. It blew very hard, so we dropped both anchors as we were drifting. Two of the sailors that were shipped in London were no good at all and didn't seem to know anything. They shipped as able seamen, but were not nearly as good as ordinary seamen. We remained at anchor about three days, when the second mate went forward to call the sailors to heave up anchors and make sail for a start. Then the two that I said were no good refused to do so, saying they were sick, and the other two refused unless the captain was shipped two more good men. The second mate came aft and told me what they said. I reported the case to the captain who said, put them in irons. Right here I will say that there are a great many pretended sailors who work such tricks on captains of vessels as they generally secure a good advance and then form some scheme to get away from the vessel. On going forward with the handcuffs, they refused to be put in irons, which I also reported to the captain. We then both went forward, whereupon a scuffle ensued, one of the men stabbing me with a knife in the back of my neck, which has left a large scar that I will carry to my grave. The thrust was meant to kill, as the knife went in all of two inches, and by placing my finger where it went makes a very funny feeling at the present time. A sheath knife is an ugly thing to be cut with. We then hoisted our flag in the rigging, union down, a sign of distress. When a boat came from shore to ascertain the cause of distress and took the captain and myself on shore, where I was put in a hospital for treatment. I was there four days before my wife was allowed to see me, as my case was a critical one. The doctor thought I would not pull through, but with a good constitution, I soon rallied. After I went to the hospital, the police went on board the vessel and took the mutinous sailors on shore and lodged them in jail. While in the hospital, the sailors were brought in and court was held there, and the decree of the court was that an American on American vessel had no right to put a man in irons in English waters. A very queer ruling, I thought, for an attempt to murder, so the sailors were allowed to go free. I remained in the hospital about 12 days. After the men were set free, the captain went to London and shipped four more men and a mate and sent the two that were playing sick on shore, as they were of no count at all. When the captain told me that he had shipped a mate to take my place, it made me very indignant, and I refused to go with him, but he cried and took on so that at last I consented to go. I didn't like the idea at all, but he meant well and did so to make it easy for me, as I was not yet able, yet I thought I was, to stand watch day and night, as I had not recovered from my wound, as it was such a deep cut it took a long time to heal, and it was a very close shave and a great wonder it did not sever my jugular vein or my backbone. The hospital surgeon gave me permission to go, but told me I must be very careful, as I was not near out of danger yet, and told me not to undertake to do anything but to keep as quiet as possible. After going on board at daylight, we hove up anchor and made sail for our journey to New York. We had very good weather the first part of the passage, and it was about twenty days before my neck healed. I had an easy time of it, as my regular duties fell upon the new mate, 
and I let him fill the position without molestation on my part. On the latter part of the passage, we had very heavy weather, but fortunately did not carry away anything, either sails or rigging, and at last arrived off Sandy Hook. The captain then gave me all orders instead of the new mate, and as we took a tow boat, we were soon at the wharf in New York. As soon as we were made fast, the captain discharged the whole crew, mate and all. After discharging the cargo, Captain Nash went home to Harrington, Maine, and sent on a Captain Roberts to command in his place. After he arrived, we chartered to load coal at Port Johnson, New Jersey, for Salem, Massachusetts. After we finished loading, we shipped a second mate and four sailors and a steward. We towed to Port Johnson, a distance of about four miles. Our cargo consisted of about 550 tons. We again hired a towboat and towed through Hurl Gate. After the towboat cast off our lines, we set sail and headed down Long Island Sound towards our destination. We had a very pleasant run all the way. On arriving at Salem, we were fortunate in discharging below the bridge, as vessels heavily laden many times have hard work in getting up to the wharves above the bridge, and they must catch the tide at its full, as at low water, the water about all flows out, and if a vessel gets caught above on her way to the wharf when the tide is going out, she remains in the thick mud, when at extreme low water there is scarcely water enough for a duck to swim in. Many times a towboat will start with a loaded vessel and probably get about halfway to the wharf, when the muddy water soon tells them that they had better let go and get into deep water themselves, or else they will have to lie in the mud. By being left in the mud quite a distance from the wharf means hard work for the sailors, because as soon as it is high water, one must take the boat and scull with a line from one side to the other, while those on board haul her along until she's made fast. So I considered ourselves very fortunate in discharging below the bridge. As soon as we were made fast to the wharf, the captain discharged all hands but myself and made a visit to his home while I superintended the discharging and taking in ballast. When he arrived, I concluded to leave the vessel, so my wife and I took the train for New Bedford. I remained at home a short time and then started into the fish business, but I did not succeed very well, so I sold out and gave it up. I then hired out to work in a junk store where I remained a few months but it was not agreeable to me as I was not used to working on shore. I had, for years, been thinking about crossing the Atlantic Ocean in a small boat. In fact, I was very anxious to outstrip any attempt that had ever been made. Anyone would naturally think that knowing what the ocean was by living on it so many years would banish all thoughts of any such attempt, but not so with me. I was venturesome and daring, and I thought if I could manage to eclipse all others, I could make considerable money by so doing. I knew it would be a daring feat. Had it not been, I don't think I would have pondered over it as much as I did. But the more I thought of it, the more decided and determined I became. While working in the junk store, unbeknown to everybody but my wife, I perfected my plans of a boat that I considered capable of crossing from this country to England in. After looking over my plans very carefully for several days, I considered them perfect in every particular. I formed them partially on the plan of a whaleboat, as they were the most seaworthy of any kind ever built. In fact, they could hardly be improved upon. But as I should have to live right in her, I had to form my plans accordingly. After satisfying myself that everything was as I wanted it, I took my plans to a boat builder named Samuel Mitchell on Fish Island, in the Ashnut River, adjoining New Bedford, by a bridge. He had become famous as a whaleboat builder, and for that reason, coupled with my acquaintance with him, I employed him to build my boat exactly as I had planned her. 
I do not remember whether any conversation ever passed between us in regard to what use I intended to put her to or not, as I was very careful not to speak of it to anyone, even to my employees or fellow workmen. She was completed about the 10th of May, 1877, so I removed her from his shop and stowed her away for a few days. On the following Saturday night, I informed my employers that I did not intend to work for them any longer. When, as was natural, they asked my reasons for leaving them, I told them that I was going to sea again. I did not tell them that I was going in my dory boat, but the following Sunday, they and nearly everybody else in New Bedford heard of it, and a desire to see the boat took possession of everybody. Everybody had something to talk about, so it was as well or better advertised than if it had been published in the newspapers. It was the topic of the day, and many shook their heads as much as to say, he must be crazy. But whether I was considered so or not, the object of my desire for years was about to be tested, and nothing could change my mind. As I, like all sailors, had spent my earnings as fast as I made them, I wanted to get a little ahead for a rainy day, and I thought that if I could only succeed, I could exhibit the boat and myself, and by charging a small fee for admission, I could make a little money. The ocean had never been crossed in so small a craft, and has not since, as mine was the only one of her size that, to my knowledge, ever made the attempt. My intentions were to go from New Bedford, Massachusetts, to England, and the most important feature of the trip was that, owing to the boat being so small, I could not carry a chronometer, so the voyage must be made by dead reckoning, depending on passing vessels to furnish me with my position, as the captains always know just what latitude and longitude they are in, and about the distance from port, so my readers can see what a seemingly rash undertaking I was about. Yet, I was confident of success, and never for a moment doubted my reaching England in safety. I was positive my little boat could live where a large vessel could, and I scanned her with a longing akin to love, as a good boat is a sailor's paradise. Chapter 4. Across the Atlantic Ocean in a Dory Boat As I began to make preparations to rig my boat with her masts and sails, my wife was all anxiety about my intended trip, and the idea preying on her mind until at last she informed me that if I went, she should go too. This was something I had not thought of for a moment, and, again, how could two go with such a small craft, with hardly room for one and turn around? But there I was, face to it, and I knew my wife's courage, as I had seen it tested, and I knew, without argument, that when she said she was going, she meant it, and that settled it. There was no use trying to dissuade her, as I could only be wasting breath, so I took the matter as coolly as possible. Had I known things would have taken such a turn, I would have had my boat built a trifle larger on her account, but it could not be done now, as she was all but built. My readers can see how cramped we would be for room, as I had built the boat just 19 feet and 7 inches long, 6 feet and 2 inches wide, and 30 inches deep, and she only drew 13 inches of water with us and everything on board. Her foremast was 21 and 1 half feet long, and the mainmast was 20 and 1 half feet long. Her main boom was about 10 feet long. The foresail contained 15 yards of light duck, and the mainsail 10 yards. Just 25 yards of sail to carry two people across the Atlantic Ocean. Just think of it. Her measurements were one ton and 62 one hundredths of a ton, her actual weight being about 500 pounds. She was decked over on top and had two scuttles, one forward and one aft. The one aft I had to sit in to steer so my readers can see plainly what a large amount of room we had to eat, drink and sleep in. It was a vast difference between our limited accommodations and the comforts of a palatial steamer to cross to England. 
I rigged her as I intended and had her photographed on Fish Island before launching her. The accompanying picture below shows her exactly as she looked with myself and wife on board. I then launched her, and the following Monday put my kegs, which were to contain fresh water for drinking purposes, on board in position, and again she was photographed. I gave it out that I, with my wife, would start on the 28th of that month, May. My intentions were to have a trial trip in her, but I did not get a chance. I kept her moored at Fish Island, and the following Sunday, the Reverend James Butler of the Seaman's Bethel held religious services on the island, which were largely attended, as it looked as though the whole city had turned out. The next day, I put on board our provisions, which consisted of 90 pounds of biscuit, 75 pounds of canned meats, and 100 gallons of fresh water for drinking purposes and for making tea or coffee. We also carried a sufficient quantity of tea, coffee, sugar, and other light articles. The two scuttles I mentioned were 18 by 24 inches in size, and the one where Captain Crapo would sit to steer was to be used for a dining table, meaning, of course, the sliding cover. The report of our intended voyage spread like wildfire, and the papers everywhere published more or less in regard to it, and I will give my readers the benefits of one which appeared in the New York Times which read as follows. It is reported that a new Bedford sea captain has started with his wife on a very perilous expedition. He has undertaken to cross the Atlantic in a small boat of two tons burden and measuring about 20 feet, and of course, he has been called a bold and reckless man by all the papers which have written on the subject. That is a correct estimate of his character, the New York Times feels more than assured. These words the journal thinks hardly do justice to his courage. Though this is not so much shown, the writer imagines in the fact of his attempting to cross the ocean in a small boat as in his taking his wife with him on so long and lonely a voyage. Very few husbands and wives have been in each other's company or society without rest or intermission for 40 days, and the New York Times does not believe that this can be made to answer. When nature placed man's offices in town and their homes in the suburbs, she made provision for temporary separations which are absolutely necessary. Married people living on shore can always escape from each other's society on certain occasions when escape seems desirable, but in a small boat, this is out of the question. When, goaded by the refusal of the galley fire to burn, she begins an exhaustive analysis of the captain's character and gradually shows that he is a brutal and loathsome tyrant, he will be compelled to listen. There is not a nook or corner of the boat to which the clear tones of an earnest woman will not penetrate. When, in his turn, he finds the coffee somewhat cold and thereupon expresses with all the resources of forcible language at the command of an experienced sailor the conviction that there is no crime, from murder up to frying beefsteak of which she is not capable, she must either listen or jump overboard. At first all may go well, that is to say, very much at first, quite at the beginning of the voyage. Perhaps for the first two days they may be happy, but about the third day the writer is afraid that a sunburnt nose does not add to his wife's attractiveness, and she, on her part, will ask herself if it is possible for a woman to respect a man who uses tobacco. Such little differences will surely arise, and the remedy of a temporary separation being impossible, a week, but a small portion of the 40 days the voyage is to take if all goes well, will probably land them in the middle of a considerable row. The New York Times therefore predicts that the journey will not be made, and pictures the travellers returning to the starting place 
after a short absence, when the husband will spring to land and make straight for Siberia by the shortest route, and the wife will rush to torrid zones with at least equal rapidity after, perhaps, having one final claw at the departing mariner. As the greater portion of our food was cooked and in cans, we merely had to warm it up when required to serve, as cooking to any extent would be entirely out of the question as our stove was a small kerosene lamp stove made to hold a pint of oil, so my readers can plainly see what disadvantages we were about to undergo. But our accommodations were limited, so of course we had to get along the best we could. And again, we were more or less afraid of an explosion, as the boat, in heavy weather especially, would jump and roll about so much as to make it unsafe to put much oil in at a time, so we never put in more than a gill at any time. This being the day set for sailing, we had to hurry in order to make our start without disappointing the multitude of people collected on the wharves and vessels, and especially in row and sailboats which were very numerous. In fact, I never before or since saw so many boats on the river on any occasion, and as it has been published in the papers, many people came on the noon train to see us. Ladies especially would force themselves through the crowd in order to get near enough to shake hands with my wife and many there were more than surprised to see the miniature boat we were going in. Surprise and wonder could be seen pictured on their faces, and no doubt a great many of them were saying to themselves, they will not go far on that little boat and will soon be back again, the laughing stock of the community. The most noticeable of all at this time was an old lady that I think arrived on the train who forced her way to the side of my wife. Her grey hair denoted the passing of many summers and as many dreary winters. She shook the hand of my wife in a very affectionate manner, saying, My dear child, you are not afraid to trust yourself in such a small boat on such a dangerous undertaking? You are young and very brave, and I earnestly hope that you will merit what you deserve. My old father was as near us and our boat as he could possibly get, crying and wringing his hands in a manner pitiful to see in an old man of his years, and constantly saying, The two foolish children, I will never see them again. All this time... I was getting our things on board, and as it was nearing our time of starting, I did not have time to stow things as they should be. My drogue, line and anchor, compass and water kegs, and many other smaller articles were presented to me by friends. Many of my wife's friends were trying to persuade her from making the attempt, but to no avail. She was as determined as I was. All this time the crowd was growing larger, as many quit work to see us off. At last, I was ready to cast off, and was about to do so when Captain Humphrey Seabury of New Bedford, a well-known and respected citizen, appeared and presented me with a compass that had probably been used on more than one whale ship, and was a reliable one at all times, and I was more than pleased to receive it. He also gave me two charts and an old-fashioned square lantern, the foreside of glass fitted to slide out when necessary to clean. It was fitted to burn candles in, and he also gave me a quantity of candles to burn in it, he, being an old sea captain, knew what would be the most essential at such a time, and I was very thankful to him for them. As soon as I cast off our line, a general hurrah was given and handkerchiefs were waving everywhere. The yachts at their moorings fired a salute as we passed, and many boats sailed down the bay in company with us, the boats in the harbour being so thick as to make it impossible to get through, and all of them wanted to keep as near to us as they possibly could. As my boat was so small, the custom house officials could not issue marine documents to me, so I carried the following letter. Custom House, New Bedford, Massachusetts. Collector's Office, May 28th, 1877. Captain Thomas Crapo and his wife, both of this city, 
being about to sail from this port in a boat called the New Bedford, measuring one and sixty-two hundredth tons, bound for London, England, requests me to give him a letter, as, on account of the small size of his vessel, I cannot issue marine documents. I, therefore, desire to make it known to all whom it may concern that Captain Crapo is well known here, and his purpose is entirely legitimate, and he has the good wishes of this community that his voyage may be successfully accomplished. J. A. P. Allen, Collector of Customs As we hurriedly put our things on board, they were not stowed as we intended to have them, as, at present, they were all in a heap. While we must make some preparations for trimming the boats, I found I should have to anchor or run into some port, and as I perceived she was leaking considerably on account of not having been in the water long enough to swell her tight, I decided to run in at Vineyard Haven for the night. In crossing the bay, the wind blew quite fresh from the southwest, and the boat behaved very creditably. As we arrived off Woods Hole, the wharves everywhere were black with people, as telegrams had been sent to them to be on the lookout for us, and cheer upon cheer rent the air while hats and handkerchiefs were waving from every available point. We continued on to Vineyard Haven and ran up alongside of the wharf when I found that the boat had leaked more than a foot of water and had wet our bedding and other things. A very enthusiastic crowd of people met us and gave us a hearty welcome. It was about six o'clock in the afternoon when we arrived and as night was fast approaching and I wanted to get away as soon as possible, I began taking the things out to dry and after they were removed, I had a tin pump made to pump her out with. We also disposed of a large quantity of photographs of the boat with ourselves on board. We were also invited to go to the hotel called the Mansion House, which invitation we gratefully accepted, especially as it was tendered to us as a compliment by the people of Vineyard Haven. After we arrived, we had tea and adjourned to the hotel parlours, where we were asked all sorts of questions relating to our intended trip. We retired early in order to get as much sleep as possible as it would probably be a long time, if ever, before we would again sleep in a nice comfortable bed. We arose about daylight, and after partaking of a breakfast we walked down towards our little boat, followed by a very eager throng of people. On arriving, we found that many of our things were still damp, so we waited for them to dry. About nine o'clock, I found that our things were indeed dry, so we put them on board again and was about to cast off when the Reverend L. R. Waite of Vineyard Haven delivered a short speech and at the close of his remarks, he handed my wife a letter, telling her to open it at sea. This was on the 29th of May, 1877. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there, for $20 a month, you get access to the one-hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty-gritty of it, and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, 
Go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.